Romans chapter 12 in your Bibles. Let's turn there if we can, please, and ask the Lord's presence as we continue our study. Challenging, of course, that is the theme for the uh, July, uh, challenging our, our church family. In many ways, we have a uh, challenge uh, sheet here. If you don't have one of these, they're in your bulletin. You can pick a bulletin as you leave. You can have one, put it in there. I'd like to encourage you to do your best on the last night of July, on a Sunday night after church. We have a special activity for those who've done at least seven of the challenges. Learning five memory verses. Uh, participating in the workday this Thursday uh, in preparation for a youth conference. That would be a great opportunity, a challenge. Maybe you cannot do that, but if you can, that would be a challenge you could take advantage of. Witnessing to someone, trying to go through the gospel with someone, asking God, Lord, help me to do that in the month of July. And I'm preaching to the choir here, but coming on a Sunday night service, coming on a midweek service, a Wednesday night uh, service would be good. Coming to the Saturday soul meeting this Saturday morning at uh, 10 o'clock, We'd love to encourage as many of you as possibly can come. Come and take the challenge. I want to spend a special time. It's just a kind of a small thing, but I think it'll be something you'll enjoy as we're looking to reserve someone spe- someplace special for that, for that night uh, after church on the 30th of uh, July. But uh, please take this and, and uh, begin the taking the challenge uh, together with uh, God's people. I'd appreciate that very much. In the book of Romans, definitely a challenging passage of Scripture before us. The book of Romans is, of course, a doctrinal book. Starts off with sin, chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 and 5 talk about salvation, how to get saved. And talks about salvation is not by works, it's by faith in Jesus Christ. And then chapters 6, 7, and 8 are talking about sanctification. How after I'm saved, I need to continue to purify myself and be pure even as he is pure. And overcoming sin, and that's where you see uh, Apostle Paul's battle with sin, that yield not yourself servants to sin, but yield yourself unto the Lord. And then, uh, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this, this sinful flesh that I have? And then chapter 8, it's a spirit-filled life that delivers you. And you'll see, if you read chapter 8, you'll see inf- uh, references to the Holy Spirit of God. Chapter 8 concludes with who can separate us from the love of Christ? Uh, can... Anything above me or below me, height or depth, or is there anything that uh, principalities or power, can government take me away from the love of Christ? He goes on to say there's nothing, no created thing, and everything that you see in this world is created. Even Satan himself, a created being, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, which you have. You're more than conquerors through him that loved you. Chapters 9, 10, 11 primarily speak of the sovereignty of God and the nation of Israel and how the nation of Israel received the Lord Jesus Christ, but they rejected him. And then, chapter 11, God's plan for the ages and how you can receive by calling upon the name of the Lord and the gospel getting out, chapter 10. And then it kind of picks up in chapter 12, and I think kind of 9, 10, and 11 seem to be more parenthetical. You could almost finish chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God, and then I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And chapters 12 through 16 speak of service. So let's just outline the book of Romans once again. Chapters 1 through 3, what? Sin. Chapters 4 and 5, salvation. Chapters of 6 through 8, sanctification. Chapters 9, 10, 11, the sovereignty of God in relation specifically to his people, the nation of Israel. And then chapters 12 through 16, service. 
sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty of God in relation to the nation of Israel, and uh, service. Well, chapter 12, he turns the page, and you can tell, as it is the M.O. of the Apostle Paul, he gives doctrinal foundations and then practical application. You can see that in any of his books. You look at the book of Ephesians, you'll see very doctrinal foundations, and then it says, therefore, because of this, let's do this. Let's get this done. And he talks about uh, giving chapter 4 of, of uh, Ephesians, and giving worth to the vocation wherewith you're called, and all lowliness and humility and so forth and so on, forbearing one another in love and endeavoring to keep the unity of the body of peace. All the teaching of the Scripture, and one thing we all want to do when you teach a Sunday school lesson and you're on the bus route, you're preaching a message, you want to give doctrinal information along with practical application. He says, happy are you, or blessed are you if you hear these things, but happy are you if you do them. And there's something always God wants us to do. And when you get the truth of God's Word in a Sunday school class, a discipleship lesson, a Bible Institute class, a college class, or a youth meeting, or even a service like this, you ought to walk out to your car and say, what am I supposed to do with this? What, how does God want me to live differently? What do I need to do? And there is a blessing when you not only hear the Word of God, but when you do it. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, because if we're just a hearer and not a doer, who gets deceived? Deceiving our own selves. We'll be deceived and we'll not, we'll not do it. One of the greatest things you can do is learn to obey God. I was speaking to one of our new believers that got saved recently, and he was talking to me a little bit about some of the struggles he has in the early days. That's why everybody needs to work with somebody. Work with someone every week. Ask God, Lord, who could I help walk through the early stages of their Christian life together? And don't make excuses why you can't do it. If you want to do it, you can do it. And you're going to find there'll be great blessings to you if you will help people in those early stages. And you can do it, and the Lord wants us to do it. They need that help. But he was talking to me a little bit about those things, and one of the things I went back to, and I said, you know, you, the way you understand the doctrine is to do the doctrine. If you do what God wants you to do, you'll have more understanding. And he had some questions about some things, but the way you understand biblical truth is get involved with it. As a teacher, I remember hearing this years ago at the American Association of Christian Schools, and um, one of the speakers said, if you tell me, I'll forget. If you show me, I'll remember. But if you involve me, I'll understand. You understand processes by getting involved. You say, Pastor, why is it you want everybody to get involved in youth conference? I want you to understand youth conference. <laughs> you get involved, you'll understand it better. I can tell you all about it, but when you get involved, you'll say, okay. When you see little kids you're giving lunch to on, Saturday, on, uh, on, on Wednesday afternoon, walk the aisle and get saved or surrender themselves to serve the Lord on Thursday night, you'll say, oh, that's why I did that. When you work in the midway and pick up balls or pick up things or help, help make that better and you see all these kids coming around and you see these 18-year-old kids but also 13-year-old kids and then you see what God does in their heart and then you'll say, oh, I get this. This is why we do this. And we get involved, we understand. Well, I think the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit wants us to get involved. And so that's where he comes with, uh, with the book of Romans, chapter 12. Let's look at it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We see real quickly salvation. Their brethren, 
de dedication or presentation, presenting your own bodies a living sacrifice, and holy and acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service. If he, lives, if he died for us, we ought to live for him. Verse number two, read it out loud with me. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So now we talk about se separation, transformation, and illumination. Kind of basically, if you were to outline that, uh, first of all, he said, um, he said, don't be conformed to this world. You'll never live and you'll never grow past your willing to separate from things that are counterproductive to your spiritual growth. You've got to say no before you'll say yes. You'll never grow. You want to keep, you want to keep your video games. You want to keep your music. You want to keep your movies. You want to watch all this garbage and fill your head with all that stuff and try to live a godly life. You're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. You can't keep your old friends, you can't keep your, your same social media feeds and all those things and still live a holy life. You can't live a holy life on a diet of HBO and Netflix and all that other goofy stuff. You're going to have to separate from some things in order to grow effectively. He said, don't be conformed to this world because the world's designed to change our thinking. That's where, that's where the battle is. The battle's the mind. He says, being transformed by the renewing of your life. Is that what the Bible says? by the renewing of your mind. And the battle's for your mind, and that's why separation is important. And then transformation is a result of separating and renewing your mind. You get, tra you get, you get transformed, and then you prove what's that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Then you're illuminated. You get to see what God is trying to accomplish, and you have passion to do it. So basically, we see that he opens up. He says, look, now that you're never going to be separated from God, you're going to heaven, you have the Holy Spirit at your disposal, now present yourself a living sacrifice. Give yourself wholly to the Lord. It's a reasonable thing to do. Separate from sin and, and don't be conformed to this world's thinking and this attitudes and actions of the world, but be transformed by the, the renewing of your mind that you can evaluate what is the, most, the, the, the clearest, best thing that God wants you to do. Never settle for better when you can have the best. And the best is what God has for you. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if I'm talking to you and you're 80 years old or you're 18. Uh, God's way is best. And uh, when you serve God, you can always expect more than you can expect, and it's better. Uh, and the devil, it's the devil's lie. The Christian life is so hard. It's not hard. You know what's hard? It's living like an idiot. That's hard. Living out in sin, that's hard. Picking up the pieces after you've made a wreck of everything and you've gone into immorality and you've gone into alcohol and you've gone into the world system and you've, you've been good at something that doesn't matter. That's what's hard. But living for God's not hard. That's what we want to do. And I've got a, I know we have a church full of people. That's their heart too, and I rejoice with that. Well, he says now, verse number three, that we presented ourselves, we've separated ourselves, we've been illuminated to evaluate what is the, what is the perfect, what's the perfect will of God for my life. He says, if, if you do that, then don't let someone think more highly than you ought to think. Because one thing that, that God is attracted to is humility. He gives grace to the humble. Look at verse number three. Read it out loud with me, would you please? For I say to the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself, but to think according as God has dealt to every man a measure of faith. He said, I want you, based upon this presentation, you've got to keep it low. And I had my old friend, Brother Gilbert Gaylor, Brother Gaylor, Brother, Gaylor, Brother uh, Jerry Vargo knows, knew him well, but he would say, John, stay low and go slow. No one ever fell off the floor. And, uh, you know, he's telling me, 
hey, stay humble. Not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Especially if God uses you or you begin to separate and you see begin to God use you. Well, keep it, keep it simple, stupid. Stay low. And remind, remind yourself, not highly, more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly. That means with purpose. What is my purpose? What's my role in this situation? So many Christians get off their rug. And they're trying to be like somebody else. You're not trying to be like someone else. You're not made like them. Just be the best you you can be. And uh, this week I'm going to spend a little time on the radio with uh, Hebrews chapter 12 talking a little bit about the race that God's given us to run. And I'm not running a race against you. You're not running a race against me. We're running a race against God's potential for our life. And he said, he said don't think yourself more highly than you ought to think, but remember your purpose, what God's made you. And uh, live in that, in that realm. Look at the next verse, if we can, please. Verse number four. We go into the cooperation stage. It says, for we have many members in one body. We have to stay unified. And all members have not the same office. He said, all of us have different strengths, different gifts, different compatibilities. So we, being many, we're many members, but are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Basically, you can put beside there, teamwork makes the dream work. Everybody doing their job. Uh, I'm glad I, uh, I'm glad I got an eyelid. Could you imagine? An eyelid is such as, it's less than an ounce probably of my big 200 and 200 pound, too many pound body. But that, that, that eyelid, I wouldn't, want to, I wouldn't want to live without it. It flushes my eye. If I didn't have it, my eyeball would be hand in my, in my, land in my hand all the time. It needs to keep it in there. It's small. A toenail, small. Fingernails, quicks. Do you ever get a quick in your finger? It just hurts. It's frustrating. We have many small things in our body, and some of us, we're some of the smaller parts of the body, but we're essential. Some of you are covered up by skin, and uh, some of the, some of the, more, the more valuable and they're comely, they're not very pretty parts of our body. They're not, not talking about physically in our church family, but I'm telling you, there are people that they don't, they don't come to the pulpit. They have no interest in speaking to a microphone. But they're, they're the organs of our body. They are the pancreas. They are the heart. They are the lungs. They, no one has to motivate them. They just do it. Aren't you glad you don't have to stay up at night and say, oh, heart, keep beating. Come on, man. You've got to do this at least on tomorrow morning when I wake up. No. There are many people. They don't need the, the, the pat in the back. They just, they just show up. They're there. They're not looking for attention. They just keep on going. They keep on working. And uh, they appreciate any kind of appreciation, but they don't, they're not motivated by that. They're the heart. They're the lungs. They're the liver. They're the filters of the body. They're the essential parts, but they're covered up by skin. Now, God knows what they do. And boy, this room is full of people like that. And uh, they, don't, they don't get a lot of accolades, but boy, they're the reason we're sitting here. And uh, then there are other parts that are, that are mouthpieces and earpieces and, and eyes that see and and hands that, that touch. All of us have some, some responsibilities, but we're all attached to one body, and we need to have cooperation. One of the things that you learn whenever you learn that you have strengths and other people have strengths, and they're usually not the strengths that you have, when you learn a little bit about these spiritual gifts, I think the blessing of it is, it first of all, helps you know how do I assimilate into the body? What, how do people fit into this particular church family? Now, we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who puts it together. 
And the Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. So he's the one who brings you here. You, none of us say, well, I got here all by myself. No, you didn't. God brought you. And you're a gift and you need to get unwrapped. And when you understand your gifts and you understand other people's gifts, I think the benefit of that is, okay, now how do I fit in this thing? And how does my friend, how does my wife, my kids fit into this thing? Number two, you develop an appreciation, not only assimilation, but appreciation for your brothers and sisters in Christ. See, someone who is gifted for mercy can get frustrated with a, with a person who's gifted for prophecy. Someone who is a, is a servant can get frustrated with a ruler. But they need each other. They need each other. And when you understand how God wired us and how he wired your kids and your husband and your wife, then I think you understand better how it is that you can not only assimilate to the body of Christ, but that you can appreciate each other. Boy, it's a good day and a mature moment in the life of a Christian when they understand why other people function like they do, and I love them. They're a little different than me, but God made them for what he's using them to do, and God made me for what I'm using to do. And then it helps me to associate with them. Assimilate, appreciate, associate. Would you mind saying those words with me? Assimilate, appreciate. When you understand your spiritual strength and what you are in the body and what other people are in the body, then you say, okay, here's what I need. And I think everybody who's in charge at all, if you're a mom or a dad, you want to say, what has God made my child good at? What is, what is their strength? What is their bend? That beautiful verse in Proverbs, train up a child in the way he, okay, should go. And of course, that is training. But also, it's kind of like, what's his bent? Boy, if I tried to get Coleman to be like Drew, I would frustrate the snot out of, out of Coleman. Because they're, no, they're, they're brothers, they're close, they're, they're, they love each other, but they're just about as polar opposite as you can get two guys to be. They're just very different. They're made differently. By the way, we sometimes make mistakes in our, in our, own, in our own church life and our Israel life. We, like, we compare our children with other children. Oh, you're not like this, you're not like that. Well, no, they're not like that. God made us different that he can make us one. In a marriage, God wants every marriage. He's, his goal for every marriage is oneness. His goal for our, our body. Matter of fact, he says in Ephesians chapter 4, which I already quoted, whenever he gives the foundational about the local church, and he's exceedingly abundantly about all that we'd ask or think in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, now unto him, be glory in the church both now and forever without, without end. Amen. Then he says, now, I want everybody to give worth to the vocation wherewith you're called. And you'll do that by being lowly and humble. You'll do that by forbearing one another. You'll do that by working for unity. Some Christians, strife is their life. They just got to have some kind of thing to be frustrated with. I went to a business this week and, and the 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 proprietor there just said, you know, most of your people are really good down at First Baptist Church, but a few of them are real hardheads. They want to come to the counter and argue about stuff. And how much is this? And how can we do that? And, I, and, and it's very embarrassing because I, I'm a Christian, the person said, but a couple of people who work here are not Christian. They say, are they from your church? Boy, that, that's painful. That's frustrating. And by the way, you got to remember, you live in a glass house. And you don't just represent you, you represent the Lord. In those situations, and you represent the body. 
The hand just doesn't do what it wants to do. It can never be effective unless it's connected to the body and serves the body. So assimilation, appreciation, and association are what we garner, we garner together and we work together in this. So we need unity. Well, with that in mind, now he's going to introduce us to seven different spiritual gifts. I won't go to all of them this evening. All God's people said, hey, man, I knew some of you are just tired. You just want to go home. You're like, pastors, cut the baloney right now. Would you just cut it off and we'll pick up the rest of it next time? But let's, uh, let's, let's go with a couple of them anyway. Let's look at the first one, if we can, please. We're looking at verse number six, can we? Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. He said, okay, now you're in the body. You need to learn to cooperate with them. Now I'm going to delegate each of you with different gifts. He said, you've got different gifts than somebody else. According to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. The first gift, the first gift that God does and gives us here, exercises our gift, and then verse 9 and on, it's going to talk about not only the gift, but the grace that goes with the gift. And he says here in the first one, he says, if you got the gift of prophecy, do it to the proportion of faith that God's giving you to prophesy. Now, a couple thoughts in regards to the, the gift of prophecy. And one of the, some of these things, and there are some folks that disagree firmly with this whole thought. And, and once again, I don't want to go to seed on it. But you can look at Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and in Romans chapter 12, and you see that there are strong suits that God gives the house of God and the people of God. And you want to be familiar with them. With that in mind, I want to, I just, I say here, these are seven gifts. I think I can see very practically most people who are Christians, when you got saved, you got to get to eternal life, but you also got a strong suit. It may be a part of your DNA and how God wired you, you're hardwired this way, and, and it just kind of gets on steroids when you get saved. But especially, it's something that God has, has gifted each individual. The gift of prophecy, in my opinion, is, uh, of course, in, in, in its original state, a prophet was someone who gave forth the word of God. A prophet was a lonely job in the Old Testament. You know, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. Uh, going to tell what people God said. I, Elijah was sent to tell to Ahab, Ahab, it's not going to rain till I say so. And then what happened? He went through long times of loneliness, sitting by a brook and waiting it to run dry and going to the backyard of, of uh, Zarephath and spending time at the, the widow and being fed by the widow. I mean, it was, it was a difficult season of loneliness. But they're foretelling the word of God. And of course, before there was a Bible, the Bible says the church, as we know it, was built on the foundation of two offices, apostles and prophets. The apostles were people who had been with Jesus, and they were sent forth. They weren't made necessarily to be staying in Jerusalem. They stayed there probably a little longer than they should have, but I would say just a few years after Pentecost, most of the apostles were, not, were no longer in Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, took over the church at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Uh, the, 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 a lot of the, the, the apostles were gone. You might remember when James, uh, the, the, uh, James and John, when he was beheaded by Herod, Peter was released. He was arrested and then released miraculously. And they went to Rhoda's house and Rhoda met her and, and went over there. And then after that, he's found other places. He didn't stay in Jerusalem. They were apostles. But they had been with Jesus and they were the main they were the main foundation for the early church. Then, 
there was another group, and that was prophets. Those were people who gave the truth of the God, truth that God wanted to save prior to us having the Bible. You know, we have a Bible, so we open our Bible. I tell you, turn to Romans, everyone turns to Romans. But in the early church, they didn't have a book of Romans. It was still in development. And so a prophet would be someone who would come to a church or be in the church with the gift of prophecy and say, this is what I think God wants us to know tonight. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You know, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. I think he probably gave truths right out of our Bible now, but while we waited for the Bible to come. But in our day and time, I think the prophet here, and of course, there would be someone who gave a prophecy. There would be someone with the word of knowledge or a, someone to check them to say, is this a false prophet or a true prophecy from God? Because anytime someone gets a public gift, there are other people who want to imitate or want to get the attention. And of course, the church at first, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, 14, you'll see the Apostle Paul. He said, look, when, when you come to church, don't have 25 people stand up and giving prophecies or 25 people talking in tongues. If you're going to speak in tongues, there were four basic rules. Number one, uh, there would be no more than three people doing it. Number two, they have to do it in order, not at the same time. Number three, there would have to be an interpreter there to be able to translate what it was being said. Number four, if there was a lady in the group, she wasn't supposed to do it. Well, you take those four rules and put those in the modern-day Pentecostal movement, and you just don't really have them. You don't have tongues because you don't think you're supposed to. But in, the old but in these early days, while we waited for the Bible, and then he would go on to say, you know, whenever you were a child, you spake as a child. You understood as a child. You thought as a child. But when you grow up, you put away childish things. And when that which is perfect, that which is complete is come, then those things which are in part, tongues and prophecies and knowledge, they'll not be needed. That's where he says in context. He said, one day tongues will cease. Prophecies will vanish away. You're not going to need those things when you have a Bible, when you grow up. But when you're first starting the church, the church was in its infancy, it needed prophets. It needed tongues, especially for the Jewish people because they required a miracle as a way to get their attention. And then it needed people who would have knowledge. However, in our day and time, I'm not interested in someone speaking a prophecy over me or telling me I've got, I went with God and he told me I'm supposed to prophesy over you. I'm really not interested in that. I want to hear what the Bible says, okay? Because we feel like God's done talking. He said everything he wants me to say and know in the scriptures. And uh, when we come here at church, we're not telling you, I'm not telling you my own philosophies. There will be sometimes I'll give you my opinion based upon multiple opinions of what, the, but the Bible has just one interpretation, I want to stay right on it. I have not always been right. Sometimes I've made mistakes and said some things that I thought, ah, I don't know if I was right about that. I've made mistakes. And if you preach and open your mouth as much as I do, you'll make some mistakes too. Uh, sometimes like, oh, I didn't have that right. Uh, however, the prophecy, I think, is someone who is passionate about truth. They are passionate about truth. And uh, I think Peter was probably a good example of this in our Bible. He was someone who was, who was preaching the day 3,000 people got saved? Peter. I think prophets are usually strong about getting the truth out. They're strong about soul winning. They're, they're, they're good confront, confrontational people. They want, they want things to be right. And by the way, it's a lonely gift, but it's an important gift. 
if a church, and oftentimes churches, will run off their prophets. They, won't, they don't want the guy to, or the one to grow. And by the way, sometimes it's a lady that has a gift, and they see things very black and white. They don't see too much gray area. If someone sings a song, a little question, it's the prophet that's going to say, you know what, I don't know. I think that song had like a worldly twang to it. Okay? And thank God for them. Uh, the prophet's the one who say, you know, Pastor, I don't know for sure. They would set the appointment and say, Pastor, what you said, I don't know. I, I think, can we look at that again and make sure that's right? And thank God for the prophet. Someone who sees it, sees it black and white, sees it true, and they're, they're passionate about the truth. Peter was that way, I think, in the Bible. And there are people in this room are that way. I don't think most people have this gift. I think it's a rare gift, but it's an important gift. And sometimes people think a prophet is someone who's just always messing up their, their little billywag, you know, and, and getting in, in way. And, boy, if you could just get up here, we could do that. Uh, that's not necessarily true. But I will say this, that a prophet, if, there, if there's passion about truth and we need them, we need to adhere to them. We listen to them. But in every one of these gifts, I think it's very important you understand the foundation's been laid. Present your body's living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, not conformed to this world, transformed by the thinking that you renew your mind. Evaluate what, evaluate what is, the, what is the, the good and acceptable will of God. Humble, cooperative, working with others, so when you have the Spirit of Christ upon you, you can operate best in your spiritual gift. So if you are a prophet, he said, he said you got that. And by the way, sometimes it's a lady, sometimes it's a man. I, I think uh, that some of our great preachers have gone, years gone by have been very strong. They have to point out something that's wrong. And I think that some of these gifts, that you're going to meet people in your lifetime, and you're going to say, man, I don't know which is their gift. They got so many. They got all of them. <laughs> And Jesus was the perfect man. He had all of these. And most of us, we're not, we're not Christ-like enough to have all of them, and we're not really made for all of them. But at the same time, we ought, to, we ought to thrive in at least one, and we ought to strive for all of them. The balanced Christian will have many things as we become more Christ-like. I think many of these attributes will become ours. I, I know that Brother Hiles was not perfect. But I, I was, as I evaluate Brother Hiles' life, I oftentimes think, you know, man, that guy was a multi Gifted person. How many of you remember years ago where they would have a college group that would come here from a, a liberal college, and he would come, and boy, we'd just say, oh, we're so glad you're here. God bless you. Brother Olson, get, take him out. Get him to come to eat after the service. Oh, we were just so happy you're here. And then every service, we'd, every when he'd come time to preach, he would whack away at liberal colleges. These colleges don't believe the word of God. You know, like, liberal professors, and you know, they were just like squirming up there. I felt kind of bad for them. Boy, when you have a pastor school, Brother Howes, he always had somebody to yell at. He had some hobby horse he had to stay on, something he saw in his preaching he didn't like and all year long, and so he let everybody have it the third week of March. Let them know exactly what was wrong in America, what was wrong in their churches, and he would whack away at that. And you know why? He's a prophet. But then somebody comes to his office, been away from God for years, and comes back all beaten up. Brother Hiles, I don't have any money. I'm all messed up. What's he doing? Miss Irma, let's give him some money. Let's help him with this right here. Let's do that. A heart of mercy. A generous heart. So many things. And, of course, uh, I think oftentimes you can see that within the work of God. But nonetheless, a prophet. But if prophecy is a strong gift, I think God says, here, exercise your gift. 
But don't forget this grace. Verse number nine. Would you look at this real quickly? I think verse nine tells the prophet, here's the grace in which you need to operate. Here's when you're, when you're operating your gift, here's what you need to remember. Verse number nine, read it out loud with me, everyone. Let love be, abhor that which is evil. He said, okay, you see things pretty black and white, do you? He said, stay balanced. Yes, hate the evil. Point out something that's wrong, but also point out something that is good. Boy, a prophet who uses his gift uh, without the Holy Spirit's help will be in balance. And they'll, be, they'll always be negative and point negative things out. They won't see the positive. He said, look, if, if you're a prophet, let your love be without argument, dissimulation, just, just ticky-tack. Abhor the evil. Hate evil and point it out but also love that which is good. Some, some of you who had this strength, you need to really say, God, this is my gift. Now operate with this grace. Abhor the evil, but love the good. And uh, if you don't, sir, ma'am, you're going to frustrate your children. If every, you know, sometimes a prophet, if, you know, if he's a hammer, everything's a nail. And he wants to whack, whack away. Your kid can come in the door and, and just be the sweetest kid, just got finished reading his Bible with his shirt's not tough. Tuck your shirt in, son. You look like a, look like a bum. And you know that that's going to hurt him. You're always pointing out the negative, but you're not pointing out the positive. And there's wisdom in, in each of these situations. Let's look at the next one. We'll probably conclude with this. Look at the next spiritual gift. The first is prophecy. Let's look at the next one. Verse number seven. Read it out loud with me. Ready? Or ministry. Let us wait on our ministry. The next... Gift is ministry or service. Now, my opinion is God made more Indians than he made chiefs. I would say probably if we get everybody in here together, more of us have this specific gift than any other ones. And maybe than all the others combined. I don't know. But God, when he put together these gifts, he gave prophets, people that are passionate about truth. And then he gave ministry. He said, now, if you are ministering, usually ministry people want to, want to do something. I think you're probably, your pastor, has, this is one of his strong suits. Um, sometimes I'll show you pictures, and this morning I felt like almost just like, well, I was doing this, doing this, doing this. Well, that's what I do. This week we had a meeting for youth conference, and Brother Eddie and Brother Abdel, Miss Linda, some other folks, Brother Ricky, they've been working on meetings. I can't stand meetings. Because when I'm sitting in a meeting, I'm thinking, I could be discipling this person. I need to go visit that person. Oh, I need to go follow up with that. I, I, while I'm sitting in a meeting, I'm frustrated because I want to do something. And it's painstaking for, for me to go through the order of service for the youth conference. And I have to discipline myself and realize it's probably a necessary evil, but I don't like it. And when it gets done, I feel all worn out. Now, my wife, Linda, she is a gifted a ruler. She's a gifted, I'm the servant, she rules me. I'm just joking. <laughs> She's a gifted administrator. She's got the gift of organization. Linda will come home and she'll, she'll get ready for something for ladies' conference. Go, oh, we had such a meeting. It went three and a half hours. It was so wonderful. I said, you're kidding me. I go cross-eyed. Three and a half hours? How could anything be good sitting around a table for three and a half hours? Oh, but Linda loves it. 
She's like, oh, yeah, we got this done, and this so-and-so's going to do this, and we're going to work on this, and all oh, this is a great idea that came out of this right here. And I was like, phooey, man, I don't want to be a part of that. That's nuts. Now, I need to be, I, as a pastor, I need to be organized. I need to, I'm supposed to rule and, and oversee the flock of God. But it's not my strong suit. My strong suit would be with doing stuff. And most of you, and I didn't want to make a good thing. I can't make a good thing. But I might make a good thing a little bit better if I just know what I'm supposed to do. Every, when, I, when I went to college, I didn't plan to ever be a pastor. I was no, no one was more shocked that I was asked to be a pastor than me. When I was 32 years old and the phone rang and I said, we're looking for a pastor. I said, well, I'll, I'll give you a couple of suggestions. How about this brother and this brother? And they said, no, we, we don't want your suggestion. We want you. I said, me? No way. I, I don't want to be a pastor. I just want to help a pastor. But the truth of the matter is it's, it's, I'm a doer. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to use that personal thing, but you know, many of you are that way. We don't make a good thing. We just make a good thing better. Just tell me what to do. These are the people that will do the midways. This is the people who will, who will drive the bus. These are people who are just behind the scenes. They'll get something done. They don't, they don't mind cleaning the bathroom. Just let me know what, I, what needs to be done. Let me do that. And you know, that's a gift. He said, but if you are gifted to do something like a ministry, let's look at the grace that God wants you to apply. Verse number 10. Would you look at it? Read it out loud with me. If you, are, if you are a minister, be kindly affectionate one to another in honor. People who do stuff get frustrated with people who don't do stuff. How many would say, that's me? <laughs> yeah. Whenever someone said, look, when you're working and you're getting involved and you're doing things, you, you need to be kindly affectionate one to another in honor, preferring one another. Sometimes I... I have a friend in this room who's, a, who's very, he's very good, but, but he's not real good at working with everyone else on a project. He's better to do a project by himself because people get in his way, and he's like, yeah, man, get, either get out of my way. You know, before you know it, you've got a knockdown, drag-out fight going. But the truth of the matter is, if you're gifted to do something, you've got to make sure that you're gracious with those around you. Once again, keep your humility. Keep your cooperation. Be kindly affectionate one to another in honor, preferring one another. And, and say, you know what, I, I love these people. That, they, they, they're needed. We've got to work with them. And don't think you're, you're killing the big one because you, you folded 75 chairs. And your friend over here got 23. And you counted all of them, so you know how many it was. I was carrying six. He was carrying two. He said, he said that's, not, that's not how you work it. I don't think they let me do that. I was going to do this right here. No, you're that guy. He said he'd be kindly affectionate one another, in honor, preferring one another. Love your brothers. Work with them. Don't think you're the one killing the big one and everyone else is just a bunch of lazy bums. That is something that's inside of a servant, and I think that's why God gives us the grace here. The next one we'll have is a teacher, and we'll talk about that another time. Let's pray together.